Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast where we are exploring practical insight for racial justice and social change. I'm one of your hosts, Andre Henry. And I'm Trisha's. And we are joined today by author Sarah Kinzier. She is the author of Hiding in Plain Sight. And they knew and recently uh, dictatorship. It's easier than you think. Thanks so much, Sarah, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So I have actually wanted to have you on our show for years uh, because I feel like as we were entering the Trump era, there were not many people who seemed to be taking the threat to our democracy very seriously. Um, especially around the later, you know, the later part of the Trump era, uh, in 2020, where there was a handful of activists that were like, listen, this man is not going to try to, this man is not going to leave office. You know, <laughs> He's going to try his best to stay in office. And you were one of the few voices that I saw online on Twitter, really kind of sounding the alarm, like get ready for what this era could mean. Um, take seriously the threat to our democracy. And so um, I guess that's a very long way of saying we're honored to have you. So um, could you tell us a bit about the impetus behind Gaslit Nation, behind your book, Hiding in Plain Sight? What have you been feeling and seeing, you know, also based on your research as a scholar, that you've been trying to get the American people to see and pay attention to? Yeah, well, first, thank you uh, for having me on and thank you for listening to what I've been saying, because a lot of folks um, have been reluctant to hear it. Uh, you know, one of the things that I said when Trump first began to run um, is that there's no such thing as American exceptionalism, that institutions are only as good as the people who work in them and that the people working in our institutions have often proven to be no good um, at all. And that, of course, America is not immune to autocracy. We have a history of autocracy. It was selective autocracy. It was against enslaved Africans. It was against Native Americans. Uh, but it still is a history of autocracy. And so, of mm -hmm. course, we were as fragile, vulnerable and corrupt um, as any other country. And that was a message that at the time, I think folks did not want to hear. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I had a particular combination of expertise from studying um, authoritarian states in the former Soviet Union for most of my academic career, uh, before I started just writing books for a living, I was an anthropologist. And then also living, um, you know, in Missouri, uh, in a state that's, you know, labeled as a red state, but really has the whole political spectrum, the state mm -hmm. where the Tea Party came from, where the Ferguson uprising happened, you know, where so many different uh, political movements have been heard and have often been brutally suppressed. Uh, and so with Gaslit Nation, what you know, my co-host Andrea Chalupa and I sought to do is to give that historical context to all these different situations, to not just look at, you know, one cause, but see how everything um, is connected and to make sure that when people are looking at Trump in particular, they understand him as part of a network and they understand him as part of a historical trajectory, a very negative historical trajectory for America. Could you say more about Trump being part of a network? Because I do think that a lot of a lot of us have treated him like a bad apple. Right. Like mm. I think that happened in the, the election. Right. Like if we just get Trump out of the White House, um, everything will be OK. 
So could you say more about him being a part of a network? What do you mean by yes. that? Yeah, this is a frustrating experience now because I, I think we're going through the same thing since he's finally been indicted. 50 years, by the mm-hmm. way, after uh, the first time the DOJ looked into his crimes, he's finally been indicted. And so some people think, oh, well, now that that's taken care of, we're going to be fine. Um, you know, first of all, Trump is a, a mafioso. He's a career criminal. He's part of a transnational crime syndicate that has, you know, tentacles through uh, Israel, Russia, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, a lot of countries throughout the world. But the nationality is not really the point. You know, these are plutocrats, billionaires, um, people who blur the line between organized crime and white collar crime. My book, Hiding in Plain Sight, uh, lays out that network and especially many of the players that we still see active in it now. Um, everyone from, you know, Bill Barr to uh, the allegedly late uh, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, you know, they, they all kind of came together um, in the 1980s around Iran-Contra and around certain figures like Trump's mentor, Roy Cohn, um, you know, the mafia lawyer, McCarthy lawyer, um, you know, and, uh, you know, possible uh, I mean, there's a lot of ways I could describe him. But anyway, he was also the mentor <laughs> of um, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and all these people in the Trump fold. Mm-hmm. And so the people surrounding Trump, all of these, uh, you know, criminal enablers, oligarch enablers have been surrounding him for 40 years. He's also part of a network of white supremacy. And he has mm. basically become the new lost cause, you know, the new symbol yes. of a neo-Confederate mindset. And so, you know, I think a lot of political operatives surrounding Trump saw his utility in that way. Somebody like Steve Bannon, you know, that's been stoking these white supremacist movements, realized how powerful a demagogue he was and how he could Mm -hmm. tap into, you know, racism that had always been there. But, you know, uh, I think white people felt a social obligation, you know, to constrain their thoughts. They now felt emboldened by Trump. They felt freed Mm. by Trump and his network um, because he was screaming these things at rallies and being promoted endlessly on TV and financially rewarded. And it's sort of like a, you know, trickle down racism uh, theory of life um, that even extends to murderous racist violence. You know, you can look at someone like Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, who kills Mm -hmm. two people uh, fighting for civil rights and is rewarded financially and treated as a folk hero. And so Mm -hmm. I think he's in the middle of a lot of um, networks. The one that could defeat him if they were serious about it would be um, taking down this broader network of transnational organized crime, which is affecting not just our country, but, you know, you see it in Hungary, you see it in, in Israel and Saudi Arabia through people like Netanyahu and MBS. You obviously see See it in Putin's Russia. You know, these are partnerships. It affects the whole world. It's corruption. Um, it's, you know, the most grotesque kind of um, abusive plutocracy. Um, you know, the Epstein and Maxwell uh, cases are, are central to this as well, because it's also a black blackmail uh, network. That's actually what I was going to um, discuss with Roy Cohn. It's too long a story, mm-hmm. so just read the book. But yeah, he's in the center of a lot of bad things and getting rid of Trump will not get rid of um, those phenomenon, which have been allowed to blossom and uh, bloom a, a bitter seed uh, underneath them. Sarah, what do you think are the elements that really lay the groundwork for um, authoritarian regimes to take place? And as kind of everyday people, what are the tactics that we can um, use to fight against those elements? 
Yeah, that's a great question um, because there are different types of authoritarian regimes. And with Trump, you kind of have a unique situation. Um, a lot of people call him a fascist, and I have no problem with that because he uses fascist rhetoric. Uh, he's surrounded, certainly, by people who want a fascist state. He himself, though, he's not a fascist because he doesn't care if the United States survives. His goal is to actually you know, strip it down and sell it off for parts to his plutocrat backers. That's why they wanted him in. And so that's a little different than the historical trajectory of authoritarian states where usually you have a leader that wants to conquer territory, that wants to make the state stronger. They want to make the state weaker and they want to make the people weaker. You know, they want a weak, sick, uh, disillusioned, powerless population that will not challenge officials locally and will not challenge uh, officials on a federal level either. And they've been very successful, um, unfortunately, at, at achieving this, at really beating people down. And I think the pandemic has contributed to this. I think the trauma that people have lived to has naturally, um, you know, made people weaker. Uh, we have rightfully lost faith in our institutions. I mean, that is something that um, you know leads to authoritarianism is broken institutions. A lot of people will say the loss of institutional trust, but a lot of times that trust is not merited. You know, you should not trust institutions that hmm. betray you, that don't wow. stand up for you, that don't do their job. Um, and we were already in that situation before Trump uh, came into power. Our institutions were corrupt and broken um, and not serving the American public. Um, and so when things get to a point, you know, where we have all these crises at once, we have a crisis of authoritarianism, of systemic racism, of climate change, of COVID, you know, just a lot. I encourage people to hold on to their moral core and not let any of this pressure uh, to accept any of this as normal or fair permeate, because that is what they try to do. They tell people to look forward. They tell people to abandon history. And, you know, the Republicans have become incredibly aggressive about that, you know, blocking out um, students' ability to, you know, learn the history of their own country uh, in classes, to learn about topics that were, you know, often buried um, in the public mind until recently. You know, back in, in 2020, there was this emergence of interest in, um, you know, white mob violence and things like mm -hmm. the, the Tulsa massacre in the Red Summer of 1919 and other things. All of that is, um, you know, those are the topics that right wing folks and often a lot of kind of centrist liberal folks do not want people exploring because they'll recognize the parallels. They'll find mm. it familiar. They'll look at how people fought back and they'll also look at how things are buried. And so another thing I encourage everyone to do is, you know, write down what's happening, because if you don't tell your story, mm -hmm. um, you know, somebody else will tell it for you. You know, I think it was Zora Neale Hurston who said, you know, the if you don't tell people, I'm paraphrasing, you know, how you feel, they'll kill you and they'll claim you liked it. Yes. Um, that is exactly uh, how they operate. Yeah, it's interesting when you mention, you know, that um, America has its own political tradition, its own anti-democratic, you know, political tradition. You know, not that that's necessarily the whole tradition, right? But it reminds me of um, a historian that I read last year who said that something, and I'm paraphrasing now, something to the effect of uh, fascism functionally was uh, invented in the American South, uh, mm. you know, with the Ku Klux Klan and all that other kind of stuff. And it's really interesting, you know, when you talk about this aggressive effort to keep us from accessing our history. And that's what I feel like I saw 
in the recent Republican debate. Did you watch it, sir? <laughs> I could not bring myself to watch that debate in part because it's horrifying, but also because, you know, I know what they're going to say. They have a rhetorical plan. You know, there's a guy, Chris Rufo, who you probably know about, or an operative who, who just sits there and, you know, just announces we're now going to use the word critical race theory to describe everything that's gone wrong in America so that when Americans hear this phrase, they will instantly associate it, you know, with all these terrible things. They announced, you know, the rhetorical strategies in advance, which you would think would give um, an advantage to those opposing them to come out with, you know, their own strategy of the truth and presenting history and standing up um, for reality. But fortunately, that hasn't been the case. Um, you know, I'm, I'm distressed by what's happening in our educational system. I have a lot of friends mm. who are public school teachers and they work in places like Texas or Florida where, you know, their mm. curriculum has been changed by the state quite dramatically. And there are, you know, threats to teachers, threats to librarians. And it's often students in the public school system who come from marginalized backgrounds or who come from populations that have been historically oppressed, not allowed to, you know, at least in the, in the school environment, learn um, the actual history of their country. And that's, that's incredible. It's incredibly dangerous. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's damaging for these kids, but it also shows, um, you know, a real backlash, I think, to the, the movements of the last uh, decade, which, you know, using the internet, using archives and other means, educated a lot of Americans about things that they didn't know. I think in particular, white Americans about things that white Americans didn't mm -hmm. know, because for the populations in question, you know, this is their ancestral history. These are stories, you yeah. know, their grandparents, great grandparents could tell. Um, and I think that the popularity of a lot of these works and thinking of things like Isabel Wilkerson's, you know, The Warmth of Other Sons, you know, people not knowing about the Great Migration, about Jim Crow. Um, I think it did wake people up. And yeah, I do think that, you know, America was in in a sense the inventor of fascism. We know that Hitler was inspired, um, you know, by Jim Crow. He was inspired by the genocide of Native Americans. And, you know, many dictators have been inspired by the way that these histories have been buried. And we've been able to present the United States to this to the world as this beacon of freedom and independence. And for a lot of people, it was that. But it wasn't uh, legally structured that way. It, it was never practicing in reality uh, what it had on paper. You know, the dreams that right. are in our documents are, you know, beautiful dreams, but they've remained only that um, for too long. And I think the confrontation of that fact, you know, the dream versus the reality and people's demand that that dream um, be fulfilled. I think that is what our politicians have been very um, desperate to stop. Speaking of um, Florida and the, the primary debates, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about sort of these like new iterations of Trumpism that are trying to beat out Trump. Um, you have this like Ron DeSantis character who is trying to be, you know, uh, Trump without the baggage. And then um, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is trying to be as like outlandish and almost as cartoonish as Trump. And they had these very different reactions to the mm -hmm. um, Dollar General shooting, whereas Ron DeSantis is, is trying to keep everything at, at more of a, a dog whistle level. And um, Ramaswamy was um, basically 
trying to blame affirmative action for this mm-hmm. incredibly horrific. Whoa, I did not hear act. that. Wait, could you before you answer that, Sarah, could you say a little bit more? How did he how did he make that that leap? He was basically like the reason that we're seeing this um, rise in white nationalism and um, explicit white supremacy is because we keep dividing our country with things like oh, affirmative wow. action. Um, and it's really curious watching um, this Republican uh primary and 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 wondering which direction they're gonna gonna go with this it's all built off of the same sort of um uh like racist ideals um but what are your where do you what are your your concerns about um this this upcoming election and where do you sort of see this republican party going i mean i'm i'm frightened by the broader movement more than I am about the particular Mm -hmm. candidates. Um, I'm also, you know, the fact that we had a unpunished coup plotter criminal mafioso running again as like Cosa Nostra Grover Cleveland is its own issue. But in terms of the candidates, you know, they're they're Trump wannabes. They are also, um, you know, racists in their own right. And Mm -hmm. they feel comfortable enough in this environment to express that openly in a way that is markedly different than what you would find 10 years ago, where people may have had the same sentiments, um, but held them inside. And now it's a marketing point, you know, much as Trump's mugshot is a marketing point. Um, And, you know, what I've been concerned with are these changes that you're seeing legally on often a local level, changes in school boards and city councils, um, you know, that are banning books that are, you know, uh, targeting anyone they label, quote unquote, woke, you know, which just means either Mm -hmm. historically accurate or just someone who's, uh, you know, uh, in a uh, minority population within that town. You know, I think a lot of American white supremacy, it's rooted in anti-blackness. And you see this yes. all throughout, um, you know, white immigration where certain groups uh, that were deemed, you know, not quite white enough, uh, learn how to become white mm-hmm. in the American way by becoming increasingly openly anti-black. And we're now seeing that with, um, you know, Asian candidates and others who are not white, but they're happy to participate in anti-blackness to prove what they think, you know, it makes them true Americans and also in their mind gives them this kind of populist appeal. And then there's a certain type of American that feels like, oh, well, I'm not a racist because look at me, you know, I'm I'm voting for, Mm -hmm. for the Asian guy, I'm voting for the Indian guy. But that, you know, when that Indian guy's philosophy is rooted in anti-blackness, which is what, you know, the affirmative action rulings uh, have been about, then, you know, I I think that's clear. And so that is alarming. I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, very coordinated effort to stop um, both the exposure of things like police brutality, of systemic racist practices that have come to light in the last 10 years. And again, by come to light, I mean, come to light to a broader segment of the population, because those who are victims of this have have known all along. Um, They want to suppress that, uh, the building Mm -hmm. of these cop cities, you know, outside of certain metro areas is another example. And it's all adding up uh, to a bigger movement, which I do see as fascist in nature. Yes. So as you're, as you're, as you're laying this out, it makes me think of your most recent book, because you're talking about a playbook that dictators uh, use and whatnot. And I'm 
<laughs> and I haven't read it yet. This graphic, it's a graphic novel, right? That's the, mm-hmm. okay. So the graphic novel um, is a bit satirical, but I'm wondering if what you're describing now, if that is matching the playbook that you've seen from authoritarians and authoritarian regimes so far, are we still following that track right now? Or what do you see happening? Yeah, unfortunately we are. I mean, to some degree, things are different because of digital media and the internet and, you know, movements becoming transnational in nature and, you know, fascist and white supremacist groups influencing each other worldwide. That obviously happened before, but not at the speed and with the kind of, you know, financial connections and and other aspects. And so that's something, you know, we do describe in the book, but the book is like, yeah, it's a sort of satirical history of dictatorship written from the perspective of a dictator's apprentice, like basically advising a dictator, like, if this is how you want to do it, you know, here here are some uh, suggestions and then using examples from history to show that when Andre and I co-wrote this, we did it in, I think we, we had the pitch accepted in 2019 and then we wrote it in 2020 and it was delayed for a very long time because of COVID and just, you know, the, the inability to do production and illustration and our, our illustrators, uh, Polish, she's from Poland. Um, they were dealing with their own authoritarian state. Um, you know, yeah. she was beaten in a protest there. Like we've all been fighting. Um, emerging authoritarianism as we created this book. And one of the things that's uh, frightening to me, you know, when I look at it now is that a lot of the things we wrote about it in terms of America were more um, in the line of hypotheticals back in 2019 and 2020 than they are as a sort of straight through line today. You know, I think we had some hope um, that, you know, a democratic president, uh, Senate, and House of Representatives would be able to at least attempt to try to, uh, you know, eliminate or mitigate the damage that Trump had done, as well as the structural conditions that had allowed somebody like Trump to gain uh, access to office in the first place. And the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress have simply not done that and not made it a priority. You know, right. they've constantly just been like, look away, look forward, move on. Um, I think there's a lack of empathy uh, towards people's struggles, especially in states like mine, you know, like mm. Missouri, um, where we've lost a great deal of our rights. You know, I lost my right to bodily autonomy here when they overturned, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade. I think uh, there's a lot of they're not taking it seriously. They're still focusing on their donor network, on their political rhetoric, treating it as a horse race instead of as a struggle for democracy. And when they do talk about it as a struggle for democracy, there's a little donate here button attached. Like, it's very hard for me to take it seriously when we lived through what we did with the Trump administration. And we know Mm -hmm. exactly what its aims are, what he's capable of, that there are no limits, that there is no check and balances or laws that will constrain him and his global network. And so we know what disasters await if he comes back. And we also know, you know, to some degree, what disasters will occur if one of his little wannabe lackeys uh, gets in there as well. So you'd think this would be treated with the utmost seriousness. And the only thing people like Trump um, take seriously are, you know, basically in incarceration, you know, being mm. unable to inflict pain on the population. The only way to do that is to actually 
um, prosecute him for crimes, you know, to which he has confessed. So you would think it wouldn't be that hard. They've shown no interest in doing that. They've been coddling him, abetting him. And, you know, after a time and in a time of severe crisis, complacency is complicity. Mm. And I think the Biden administration could certainly be accused of um, complacency. And I see mm. them as complicit in this mm. rise by sitting back and um, not, you know, standing up for the Americans that are hurt by it. Absolutely. We're running short on time. And so I always like to close these interviews by asking some version of this question, Sarah, given the the weight of what you've been doing, the work that you've been doing, the news that you continue to pay attention to, the currents you're continually watching, what keeps getting you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> you know, honestly, like what, what's, keeping, what's keeping you going? Um, well, my kids, you know, I have two kids. They're getting older now. They're teenagers yeah. now, which is weird. Um, but they're awesome. And, you know, we have a great time together as a family. And I want their future to be better. I want their future to be better than the the present that I've had to live through. And so it's for them and for their generation, um, you know, that I do anything, um, you know, that that's that will always keep me motivated no matter how bad things are. Right. Amazing. Do you have any any tips for us and our listeners of how to to not become overwhelmed with what seems like impending doom. I think it's okay to be overwhelmed. I mean, I think sort of like allow yourself to recognize that you're overwhelmed and that it's normal to feel overwhelmed when there are a lot of horrific things happening at once. And that, you know, I advise people like kind of take them one at a time. If there's a particular issue you're really interested in and really invested in, focus on that. If you have a particular ability, like if you're a good communicator, then focus on that. If you're good at, you know, in-person organization, focus on that. Like you don't have to do everything. You Mm -hmm. absolutely should never feel obligated to it, to do everything. You're totally, you know, you can take breaks. It's okay to just take breaks and take care of yourself. Like Mm -hmm. we're all owed that after these years, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. But I think if everyone does a small part, that goes a much further way than, um, you know, everyone trying to handle all of the the crises at once, because it's just too much. And it's normal to feel um, upset. And Absolutely. just know other people are there with you feeling that with you and, and supporting you. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. This has been amazing. We could talk um, for a whole other hour about this, I'm sure. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Yes. Um, everyone listening, make sure that you check out Dictatorship. It's Easier Than You Think by Sarah Kenzier and Andrea Chalupa. Um, I think you can find that. I'm, I'm looking at Macmillan Publishers right now. Um, so- yeah, yeah. You can find all of the books through there, but basically any bookstore has them you know and i encourage people look for indie bookstores if you want a good one left bank books in st louis has autographed copies um amazing you know that one with andrea's signature too (laughs) so you know that that's a good place to order and they deliver nationally amazing awesome thank you so much sarah all right thank you Thanks, Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast. We'll be back at you next week, I think. I think that's how often we do this now. <laughs> Thanks for choosing to listen today. You can catch up with our hosts online. Trish's is at Trish's Music. That's spelled T-R-I-S-H-E-S. Music on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Andre is at the Andre Henry on Instagram and TikTok. And at Andre Henry on Twitter. Catch the songs you heard today and more of their music on Spotify. If you'd like to support what we're doing here and see the video of Andre and Trisha's conversation, you can join the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.